Ooh. <laughs> this was meant to be the one that didn't fall apart. <laughs> Thank you. Ta. Kia ora tato. Hi, everyone. My name is Jean Rhodes. <laughs> and I'm very glad for people who know how to do things like this and things like this. I feel like Madonna, all mic'd up. But that's as far as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, shout out to Gail Moody. Lovely to see you here for a little time. Mm. And Charles, don't worry, buddy. You've only been 30 years since your reunions. Richard, my Richard, was at a 60-year school reunion yesterday. And everyone was saying, where has the time gone? We all, we all feel like 20 in our heads. So there you go. <laughs> Um, it's my great pleasure to bring you the penultimate sermon on Philippians this morning, the letter which has been described as Paul's happiest letter. Let's just commit this time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we just bring you ourselves this morning. May we hear what you have to say to us. I pray that the words of my mouth will bring you glory and praise. Amen. What a great series this has been, and haven't we been blessed by the different speakers we've had, each bringing their own special characteristic to this series? This church sign hasn't applied at all to our series, and let's hope today, let's hope today isn't the exception. In my passage this morning, we're following on from that inspiring passage Barbie brought us last week with lots of lovely drama. Thank you, Barbie. Uh, with Paul's fervent encouragement for us to get our thought life right. There's a switch to a more practical tone as Paul thanks the Philippians for sending Epaphroditus with the gift. Let's see what he says. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. There's a couple of wee zingers in this passage, as you will see. Let's just set the scene again. It's interesting to note that Acts tells us about the first two converts that Paul made in Philippi. The first was Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman who traded in the much-prized purple cloth. The second was the jailer, who was guarding Paul and Silas the night God sent an earthquake which set everyone free. A working-class man, probably ex-army. This baby church already had people from very different backgrounds and social standings a situation which we know is typical of the early church. So now, this gift, 
both of money and of a fellow worker, gave Paul great joy. I rejoiced greatly, he says. It had been 10 years since the Philippians had last sent him a gift. For 10 years, he'd heard nothing from this fledgling church which he'd planted under dramatic circumstances. Think about that. Yet now he says he's delighted to know that they've remembered him or that they've renewed or revived their concern for him. Paul uses an agricultural word found only here in the New Testament to picture a plant that shoots up or sprites again. The Greek word used here is anatalo, which describes abundance. Takeaway number one, blooming great. We live in a time of immediate news when we can hear 24-7 of things happening across the world or right next door. Do you sometimes feel that so many needs drain you of the energy to show your concern for others. Where do you begin? All too much like hard work, we can almost feel paralyzed by the weight of need of the world. If this is the case, ask the Lord of the harvest to cause you to blossom again, to flourish and grow in showing care to someone who needs it Maybe just let them know you're thinking of them so that they too can rejoice greatly. Now, let's see what verses 11 and 12 look like. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Here Paul's talking about some of the different circumstances that he's found himself in. He's been hungry and well-fed. He's been in need and he's been well-off. And he's learned to be content, no matter what his circumstances are. Now let me be clear, Paul isn't juxtaposing these circumstances to suggest that one is better than the other, although we know which one we'd all prefer. He's using these extremes to highlight that he understands the range of human experience and he understands the challenges that come with each position. He isn't a rich person, telling a poor person to be happy with what they have, or vice versa. And he's not sitting there on a full stomach, telling hungry people to get over it. He's been there, both full and empty. He knows from experience what this feels like, yet through reliance on Jesus, he's able to be content. I'll come back to this a bit later on. At first glance, though, does it seem as though Paul's being a bit ungracious here? I'm actually not in need, guys. After all, the Philippians had just sent him a gift, both materially and in the person of Epaphroditus. Thanks, but no thanks? No, not at all. 
Paul didn't beg people to help him in his work. He just placed the need before them and trusted God to meet it. Now, let's have a little Greek lesson, my friends. If we look again at this word content, we'll find something really interesting. It's from the Greek word otakes and means to be self-sufficient, to be satisfied, to have enough. It indicates a certain independence, a lack of needing aid or help in order to be content. Come on down, Zeno of Citium, the founder of Stoicism. He looks like his rugby team has just lost the World Cup, don't you think? <laughs> as a, a serious man. This is, this is the only place where Paul uses one of the great words of pagan ethics. Entire self-sufficiency was valued by the Stoics who wanted to achieve a state of mind in which a man, don't bother about women, they didn't worry themselves about philosophy, obviously, in, in which a man was absolutely independent of all things and all people. The only way to contentment was to abolish all desire and emotion until a man had come to the stage where nothing and no one was essential to him. And he did not care what happened either to himself or to anyone else. As R.T. Glover says, Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it a peace. Love was cast out of life. Caring was forbidden. Yikes. This is not what Paul is talking about. When he talks about contentment, he may use the same word the Stoics used, but he means something very different. He does not mean a lack of passion or carelessness, and he does not mean indifference. He was deeply passionate. He cared greatly. And this is from Romans. And God knows that every time I think of you in my prayers, which is practically all the time, I ask him to clear the way for me to come and see you. The longer this waiting goes on, the deeper the ache. We see at once the difference between Paul and the Stoics. The Stoics said, I will learn contentment by a deliberate act of my own will. Paul said, I can do all this through Christ who infuses his strength into me. For the Stoic, commitment was a human achievement. For Paul, it was a divine gift. The Stoic was self-sufficient, but Paul was God-sufficient. Stoicism failed because it was inhuman. Christianity succeeded because it was rooted in the divine. But all the same, don't you think that Paul sets the bar mighty high here? It's not easy for humans to be content in any age, maybe especially so in the 21st century. We're bombarded with advertisements telling us that we need more or bigger or better. We see other people on Instagram 
TikTok, Facebook, having fun, doing stuff that we weren't part of, for crying out loud. And although he's talking about material needs here, most commentaries expand the search for contentment to include other needs, emotional, mental, and social. K.D. Lang sings, constant craving will always be. This is just part of the human nature. Remember, Paul is writing from a Roman dungeon. We'd call him a prisoner of conscience now as he awaits sentencing from the emperor. He's isolated, lonely, worried about the growth of the churches that he's established, and yet he claims to be content. How can that possibly be the case? I mean, he lacks everything the modern world tells us brings contentment. The Daily Telegraph did a survey recently listing the things people need for contentment. Apparently, 73% of people find alcohol is the way to contentment. 65% experience contentment through getting the housework done. 14% think it's sex. 9% think dancing is the route to contentment. And 6% think it's bird watching. They've obviously never met a twitcher. But Paul is writing from a Roman dungeon where dancing and bird watching and the other things on that list just weren't on the extracurricular program. And yet he's content, happy, joyful. How can that possibly be? Well, as Paul tells us, he learnt it. It doesn't come naturally. And how do we learn something? We practice it, we repeat it, we're intentional about it. Takeaway number two. It's about where we put our focus. Six months after we'd had our first baby, Stephen, we took the young people on an overnight tramp into the ranges. What was I thinking? <laughs> they bred them tough in those days. Here's a photo of, of us at our lunch stop. I'm surrounded by gorgeous scenery. A large number of gorgeous teenagers, all with their own agendas for coming on this tramp. In fact, one lovely lad spent a bit of the tramp asking Richard and me how we knew when we'd met the right person to marry. And thankfully, he's still happily married to this day. <laughs> but where do you think my focus was? What was my primary task over the 24 hours? I can give you some gory details later if you'd, if you'd like. Do you remember Rob's Warrant of Fitness series earlier this year? One morning we looked at the rearview mirror and Rob reminded us of the need to look ahead, not be fixed on what lies behind. If we focus on the things in our past too much, we can lose our peace in the present. Hebrews says, 
Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. Focus on Jesus. Through his word, whether online or on paper, through prayer, music, his creation, through keeping connected with other Christians. If Paul learned to be content, so can we. Takeaway number three, let this perspective become a habit. When jealousy rears its head, recognise it, confess it, hand it over to God. Cultivate an attitude of gratitude through saying thank you to him for the blessings he's given us. I've mentioned in the past the Annus Horribilis, don't know how the Queen managed that, Horribilis of the year 2000 for me when I had a back injury which put me out of commission for a year. I find it very difficult to be content while in pain and being unable to carry out normal life. I had to learn to hold on to God's promises and his word that he'd be with me and give thanks for those promises. And you know, the biggest help to do this was having the prayers and support of others, whether by praying with me or dropping a note to encourage me. I was encouraged just as Paul was encouraged by the Philippians. And God did come through in an unexpected and mighty way, in spite of my bad attitude. This passage challenges us to keep our eyes in the right place. When we get distracted and start focusing only on all the problems around us, or the things we don't have, we can lose sight of Jesus and forget that he's got us in the palm of his hands. But when we keep our eyes on him, we can get through whatever is in front of us. Now, I'm not standing here telling you that our worries and concerns aren't valid, that when we struggle to make ends meet, we're somehow letting Christ down by having needs. And there is such a thing as holy discontent when we know that a situation isn't right and needs to be changed. No, this is more to do with a lack of peace, with struggling with stress and tension which saps our strength each day. The Lord knows what we need, and in fact, he promises to supply us with what we need as we put him first, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Bruce Podmore reminded us in his sermon of the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And this secret isn't some kind of inner strength. Paul won't settle for us simply saying he's picking himself up by his bootstraps, making himself carry on with a stiff upper lip. 
Paul wasn't content because he had some superpower. He's not some self-help guru telling us to dig deep within ourselves. The message of Philippians 4.13 is actually the opposite. Paul's saying he isn't enough, and he looks to Jesus to give him the strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is a great verse, isn't it? It's found on mugs, posters, and fridge magnets on Christian refrigerators. But let's look at what it's not saying. If we truly want to know what a Bible verse or passage means, we have to read it in context. And Rob is always telling us that. We can't strip away all the surrounding verses and remove it from its original intent and still expect to understand it. You see, you'll hear some Christians saying, I can do all things through Christ, which means they can do absolutely anything they want. You know, like one of those American school kids high on self-esteem and ambition. One day I'm going to be president, and so on. Now, they might well be president one day, and best of luck to them. But this verse isn't about our ambitions for ourselves. It's about God's ambitions for us. It's about the things he's rescued us for, the purpose he's set out for our life. It's a promise that as you pursue God's purposes for your life, you will find a contentment and a peace that can endure any hardship. Or to put it another way, God will give us everything we need to do the things he plans for us to do. And it all starts with a relationship with Jesus. And if we haven't got that, then we won't know the contentment he offers. If you read the NIV translation of verse 13, you'll notice an important distinction from most other translations. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. When we read this instead of things, it's a lot clearer that the passage is referring to specific things, all the things Paul's been talking about. Not all things in the sense that we can do anything. In context, it's a ministry that God had sent Paul to do, but that doesn't mean a life with no limits, as Paul himself well knew, stuck in a Roman prison. It's not a blanket endorsement that God will support anything we set out to do and empower us to do whatever impossible things we can imagine, but it is an assurance that we can do whatever God calls us to do, and he will equip us for that calling. I came across an interesting example of this. Stephen Curry is a top basketball player in the NBA, as you'll all know. He has a huge number of sneakers, which he wears to his games, and on them is stitched 
this. Can you all see? I can do all things. One Sunday night, his team, the Golden State Warriors, became the first team in NBA history to surrender a 3-1 series lead in the finals, losing a game to the Cleveland Cavaliers. He was devastated. He couldn't understand how his team had lost when he had always declared, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He thought that this verse would mean he could win as many NBA titles as he desired. After the game, he went to his locker and pulled out his Bible to check whether he'd got the verse wrong. To his shock, he found the real meaning of the verse when he read it in context. He read the surrounding verses and discovered that it meant learning to be content in any situation. Sources reported him saying, seriously, in whatever situation? And a wave of relief washed over him as he realized that while it would be nice for Philippians 4.13 to be an ironclad promise that any believer can literally do anything because of Jesus, he now understood it to mean that Jesus is enough for any believer to be content in any situation he or she faces. And that was even better, especially after what was described as the most disastrous finals collapse in NBA history. He still wears these shoes, by the way, but with a surer foundation to his faith. And that's our challenge today too. How can we learn to be content? By getting our focus right, looking to Jesus, reading his word, praying about our needs, holding on to fellowship. By cultivating contentment, making it a habit to be grateful, to give thanks by trusting his strength to help us in all situations that we meet in our walk with him. I love a passage in Psalm 131. I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The child who has been weaned from its mother is content to rest on her lap, knowing that their food will come from elsewhere, trusting that the parent will provide what is needed, there for the simple joy of being in relationship. Christ has promised to be with us in all circumstances, providing what we need to do his will calling us to walk in faith and trust. There's a lovely little Celtic prayer which sums up for me the mind at ease. I lay my head to rest, and in doing so, lay at your feet the faces I have seen, the voices I have heard, 
the words I have spoken, the hands I have shaken, the service I have given, the joys I have shared, the sorrows revealed. I lay them at your feet, and in doing so, lay my head to rest. May we find rest in the midst of our circumstances, because we lean on the one who knows what we need, who loves us to bits, and who gives us his resurrection, power, and strength. Amen.